Ben Hodges is a retired United States Army officer who became commander of the United States Army Europe in November 2014 and held that position for three years until retiring from the United States Army in January 2018. He has been Senior Advisor to Human Rights First since June 2022 and also serves as NATO's Senior Mentor for Logistics. Until recently, he was the Pershing Chair in Strategic Studies at the Center for European Policy Analysis, specializing in NATO, the Transatlantic Partnership, and international security. Welcome to Silicon Curtain. All our content is also available on popular podcast platforms like Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Please do like and subscribe, share the channel with your friends, and help other people to discover the fantastic speakers we've got. And if you do like the work that we do, do please consider supporting us by becoming a patron. Ben, I, it's a huge privilege to welcome you back to the channel. This is the fourth time. I can hardly believe it. You must really be desperate for speakers, Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of people out there. There are a few people as, I think, accurate uh, in their speculation as you've been through this conflict. So you're absolutely the person to turn to in this confusing time. And this is a tricky one, isn't it? Because we could speculate about the coup, uh, the coup till the cows come home. But what really do we know for certain? And what are the unknowns? So for certain, uh, Vladimir Putin is not this tower of power uh, that we thought he was uh, and, the, and does not fit the image which he has been trying to cultivate for over two decades. Um, which means that I think we have to reevaluate, we, our Western leadership, reevaluate what does he control uh, and how would he react if he's put in the corner? You know, for the last, well, for years, there's been concern that if he's cornered, you know, if he loses Crimea or if this and this, then he'll, he's going to blow it all up. He'll use nuclear weapons. And here, where he was actually cornered uh, this past weekend, he wilted. I mean, he um, in in less than twelve hours changed from we've been stabbed in the back. We got to destroy Wagner to offering amnesty, basically, and a free pass to to Belarus for for Gosian. So um, I think that all of us have to reassess his strength and what he might do in a tight situation. We just got to look at it. And there's two questions that emerge from that. I mean, one really harks back to. Uh, a topic we've actually asked in all three of, of the previous interviews, and that is our perhaps radical overestimation of you, uh, Russia's military strength, um, possibly even going back into, into the Cold War, but certainly Putin's supposed reconstruction military. This begs the question, have we also overestimated the extent to which Putin actually controls Russia, or perhaps has always been more of a, an arbiter between competing forces, which we're only dimly aware of? That, that is a really good way to frame it, and, and, a, and it's a good question. Uh, first of all, what, what has happened over the last few days, of course, is not the type of thing, uh, as James Scher would say, that occurs in armies that are confident that they're on the path to victory. I mean, so the fact that Prigozhin was so angry and was able to do what he did uh, doesn't speak well for the uh, capabilities and the leadership inside the Ministry of Defense. And yet, who's still in office as the Minister of Defense? Shoigu. 
So that tells us all that Putin uh, values loyalty more than competence, because Shoigu has been incompetent and corrupt for going on a decade now. Um, I imagine that the number of people that Vladimir Putin really can trust is much less today than what he thought it was a week ago. Uh, there was nobody in the streets uh, rallying to support the president. Uh, you didn't see uh, too many examples of oligarchs or military officials or government officials coming out and condemning what Prigozhin was doing. Um, the Apparently, Wagner was able to take over the headquarters there in Rostov without any problem, which means there had to be, uh, this had to be something that was sorted in the beginning. And then, of course, um, I, I didn't see Lavrov until yesterday, and he made his usual nonsensical blaming the West uh, for this, this whole thing was cooked up by the CIA or, or whatever. Uh, didn't see the uh, great patriarch Kirill. Uh, he made one weak statement the other day. So I think a lot of people are trying to figure out which way the wind is really blowing. And uh, or they don't want to see Putin stay, but they're they're not confident yet that they can publicly come out and say that. So that's a long rambling answer to your good question. He clearly does not control all of Russia. Uh, he clearly does not control all of his own military. Um, and I think he hasn't conducted a purge yet because he's not confident that that would not start another mutiny. And this is probably the most dangerous oxymoron, isn't it? A weak, strong man. Um, and I think that may be what we've seen over the weekend. Um, there's lots that we cannot know. But Prigozhin has emerged looking pretty strong, actually, uh, despite having perhaps bottled uh, the coup at the last minute, or maybe the intent always was to not quite go into Moscow, but just use a show of force. But Putin no matter what goes on behind the scenes, has been shown not just to be epically weak, but no longer the strong man. And I don't know your your feelings there about Russians, but it seems to me that he could command loyalty, respect, even love of his people, um, only insofar as he provides perceived protection for them, i.e. fulfills that strong man role. As that ebbs away, do you see this as being extremely dangerous for him? Well, th this is a good question. Um, I, I think uh, the, the U.S. administration and, and maybe some others uh, were quite alarmed at what might happen if there was a collapse of the government, if the uh, uh, mutiny had not been aborted and it had led to a chain of events. You know, the, the concern of my president has always been about a nuclear escalation or that somehow it becomes nuclear. And so even though nobody would mourn the loss of Vladimir Putin, um, people would be will be very concerned about who controls all the nukes. And um, I actually think that the um, the chance of some sort of a nuclear escalation is now even less than it was before. To do it, to to employ a tactical nuclear weapon would require a lot of people being involved in a chain of decision-making, performing tasks. It's not something like this caricature where he just has a red button on his desk where he can start. I mean, it doesn't work like that. And I imagine that uh, he has less confidence now that in the 
chain of command of people that would be involved in such a uh, an employment of a nuke, uh, he cannot be very confident that they would even carry out the order. And I'm thinking um, about all of those people who can sense that, hey, this thing might be coming apart or he might be gone. Do I really want to be personally associated with the decision and execution of an order to launch a nuclear weapon when the West and China have made it clear that that's going to be unacceptable? And so why in the world would I want to help a guy who is in his last days uh, possibly uh, do that? So I think the chances of them using a nuclear weapon actually go down. And it's interesting you mentioned the U.S. administration's quite palpable fear throughout this crisis about, uh, you know, nuclear chaos or some tactical use of a nuke. At this point, they must be more fearful for chaos and Russia descending into a kind of warlord uh, failed state kind of territory, while also simultaneously being the largest nuclear armed power in the world. Um, does that lead to the fairly absurd situation and, and reports through CNN are sort of starting to say that actually there were intelligence reports of this coup happening you know many days before it actually did so there may be some awareness of, of what's about to break um are we in the absurd position that actually the US is trying to preserve the status quo uh is not going to actively obviously support Prigozhin but in some way might try to prop Putin up as the 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 better of two evils well that of course I don't know that. Uh, I certainly hope that's not the truth. Uh, we did. I did see reports from a couple of really good reporters of the New York Times that described um, that uh, our intelligence services became aware. Maybe it was last Wednesday or something that this that this was in the offing, um, and that the uh, the administration apparently chose not to do anything with it because they did not want to give. Putin any excuse to say, look, this is the U.S. Uh, told you, you know, you guys, it's the CIA after their old tricks, you know. Um, and, and so I I, I think that uh, there is no interest in keeping Putin in power, but I think there is going to be concern about uh, loss of control of the nuclear weapons. I think China uh, is, is, a, uh, is involved in this somehow. I think I think China has been communicating to Washington uh, that uh, we don't want to collapse of the Federation. Uh, we want to maintain status quo as much as possible. And so I think the U.S. is feeling some pressure. I, I, I can't prove any of this. I don't know it. But just judging from the, the way the administration acts uh, and how China, how the Chinese Communist Party leadership speaks, um, to me, this is believable that they... Are, are wanting to prevent a collapse of the Russian Federation for their own purposes, political as well as uh, economical reasons. And that's and that has driven, I think, why the U.S. administration um, doesn't publicly come out and say, we want Ukraine to win, we're going to give them everything to win, which could lead to a total collapse of the of the Russian Federation leadership. And that was that was really going to be my question, that don't these dual objectives actually lead to terrible confusion in terms of what uh, US and the West wants to see as the end result. 
We want to see a Ukrainian victory, but that might not be a maximalist victory because regaining all of its legal territory um, may precipitate the collapse of Russia, which may happen, you know, come what way uh, in any case, you know, outside our control. But that leads to extraordinary confusion about these strategic objectives and the goals. It leads to not supplying Ukraine uh, to end the war faster. Uh, so we're playing with these dials of cost of Ukrainian lives and time it takes. Um, and we seem to be stretching it out and exacting a higher cost for Ukraine, when in fact the result may be exactly the same uh, eventually. It, your use of the term dials is an excellent metaphor for what I think or, or how the administration and others are trying to manage this as if it's a thermostat. If you know, if we just do a little bit of this and a little less of that, that you know we'll be able to thread our way through the the challenges, and I think that's naive. If anything, we we ought to be able to see very clearly that we cannot manage what goes on inside Russia. Uh, everything that they have done for the last twenty plus years has been because we thought we were managing them, and they were laughing at us the whole time. I mean, they saw that we weren't willing to do anything after Georgia. Uh, after they supported the Assad using chemical weapons, despite a, an Obama red line, we, the West, did nothing of consequence after Crimea in 2014. Uh, we re Germans were still building Nord Stream 2 up until the end of 2021. Um, you know, U.S. domestic politics was uh, an embarrassment um, during the uh, Trump administration and then the transition. So um, we, we, have, we have not been able to manage Russia at all. And here we are in a war that has cost hundreds of thousands of lives, billions and billions and billions of, of dollars, pounds and euro. And, and we still are acting like we can somehow turn the dial just a little bit. You know, we're going to give Ukraine high Mars, but we're not going to give them a tackums. We're going to finally, after uh, 16 months of hand wringing, allow other countries to train them how to use F-16s, but we're not willing to do it. And it just... Um, I mean, after watching how President Putin wilted uh, this weekend and then watching him yesterday, uh, he looked smaller, weaker, more diminished than I've ever seen him since he first became a public figure. And and we're still like, oh, I don't know, we can't give attackums a or we're not sure that we should let Ukraine into NATO. I mean, now is the time for some bold, courageous, clear strategic thinking, not this namby-pamby sort of dial spinning. And I look back on the sort of transcript of our first interview, which was back, uh, I think, towards the sort of middle um, of last year, I think around the autumn. And one of the speculations, we talked about attackums, we talked about sort of various uh, machinery that would have been required. Some of that now is in place, but maybe not in the right volumes. Um, I also raised the question, which I think, at that time seemed quite shocking, which was, would Ukraine have to occupy Russian territory in order to secure a victory? And I think that seemed like a pretty radical, scary suggestion at the time. But we see that Ukraine has had to innovate because they're not getting the weapons that they need to do the job. So they've had to be incredibly smart. And you know, creating a kind of psyops or a sort of pseudo insurgency on Russian territory, um, opening up a third front essentially, um, seems to have fulfilled that speculation 
but also meant they didn't have to go in directly and blatantly. So they're playing Russia's clever little sort of uh, hybrid warfare games. Um, do you think we're going to need to see much more of this uh, to secure a Ukrainian victory? So uh, three, three or four points that I'd like to make in response to that. Number one, the UK has been leading uh, on providing capabilities to uh, Ukraine, uh, Storm Shadow being the best example, but also tanks. Uh, but the Storm Shadow capability, long-range precision, um, is the thing that I think would be most helpful to Ukraine because it would allow them to uh, hit the headquarters and uh, the Navy base at Sevastopol, make Crimea untenable, and, and accelerate Ukraine's ability to liberate Crimea, the decisive terrain of this conflict. So Ukraine, uh, or UK, has played a super role here. British intelligence a few months ago said that, uh, uh, analysis, read out analysis that about 95% of Ukraine's land forces were committed to the fight in Ukraine. And I know quite a few people were like, what? Oh, no way, come on, Russia's so big. The fact is, about 95% of Russia's land forces are committed in Ukraine, and they're and they're now in the process of losing. Uh, they're going to make up a difference of the 20 or 25,000 Wagner fighters, however many there really are, and I'm not confident on any of the numbers, but nonetheless, it's several thousand. Uh, that's been taken off the board. Yes, they've been offered amnesty. You can join the Russian army. I doubt many of these... Uh, uh, Wagner soldiers or, or mercenaries are going to be real interested in becoming cannon fodder in some regular Russian unit. Um, so that's that's a chunk of combat power that's gone. But the the piece that you talked about uh, alluded to, I think, if I understood you, this uh, free Russia legion that went into Belgorod and all of that. Um, you would have thought that the Russians would have said, "Oh my gosh, we got to protect our own border here, the real motherland." And uh, and yet, Prigozhin, when he starts his convoy, he nobody lays a glove on him, um, except for some uh, air aircraft that were all shot down. That uh, told me that no kidding, almost everything Russia has is in the fight in Ukraine. So if they can, in a way, I, I could never prove this. It'll, we'll have to find out if I, if I'm even close. Um, this could be an opportunity for Vladimir Putin to change the narrative and explain to his own country why the real threat is at home now and he's got to bring everybody back and uh, we'll take care of Ukraine later. We'll, we'll come back to that. But, um, you know, Lord, I heard Lord Robertson a few weeks ago. He said, you know, uh, the Soviets made the decision to come out of Afghanistan. There was not a lot of hand-wringing. They, they just did it. And that was it. Um, an autocrat can change the narrative. He doesn't have to worry about uh, tough journalists or uh, the Duma questioning it. And I think he, he could probably end this thing to save his own skin and to keep stay in power, which is, I think, his real priority. And there are a lot of windows in Moscow, so people who don't uh, agree with him uh, <laughs> might become into extreme proximity with them. Um and then let's turn back to Prigozhin, because I think his role is extraordinary. And, uh, you know, it, some of the speculation have actually said that, yes, this whole operation is a way of providing Putin with an excuse. But his anger and confusion seems to be genuine. 
So I'm going to take the premise that actually this was a, a genuine attempt at a coup and that there are other people behind Prigozhin that are at the moment not known. Um, and I think a lot of the media sort of speculates about what's happening and, you know, these sort of motivations. But I think a deeper speculation is, is Prigozhin coming in as someone to tear the system down and take it over and create something brand new in its place? Or is he simply looking at this prize, this money-making machine of vertical power in Russia, and he's simply uh, doing the equivalent of a sort of 90s hostile takeover, Russian style. And then in fact, he's gonna want to keep the vertical system in place. He's gonna want to keep the propaganda in place. He's gonna take plumb positions in the FSB and the military. This is this is a takeover, not a takedown. Uh, I think that, uh... Mr. Prigozhin is a businessman and a showman. I mean, that's that's what drives him. Um, I don't think he intended to actually do a carry out a coup to overthrow the government. I think this was a mutiny, and and the mutiny is uh, something done for leverage to 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 get demands answered. And for him, um, it was to keep his business not let it be subsumed into the ministry. Uh, he wanted to get rid of his arch enemy, Shoigu. Um, but, I, you know, I started thinking uh, 400 vehicles, that was the estimate in this famous convoy. Okay, whether it was 200, 300, 400, something like that. But look, even if it was 500, 500 vehicles would be swallowed up in the Moscow metro area uh, before they got anywhere close to the Kremlin or Red Square. I mean, it's just, that's not a lot in a giant city. So you're not going to take over something unless you were really, really sure you had this thing totally wired on the inside and everybody was going to come out, which never happens. It didn't happen uh, against Hitler. It didn't happen in uh, Ankara uh, a few years ago. And so I think he really genuinely just was trying to save his business and to get rid of his arch enemy. Um, he he's making a ton of money in Africa, and I think his his contribution in Ukraine was uh, he realized okay I'm not making any money here I'm about to lose the whole thing so I'm going to do this and demonstrate that I have some power. Um, now, what I I don't know that he uh, realized that he would could lose all of it, and who knows what kind of phone calls he was getting? Who knows what Lukashenko told him? Um, I don't think this whole thing was staged, although um, it's, it's hard to answer some of the some of the questions. I think Lukashenko ends up being the big winner in this whole thing. He's now got a guy who's a gigantic personality who's obviously not scared of Putin. Um, he may have some. He may get some of the troops to come with him, and Lukashenko may be a little bit more secure now, perhaps uh, against Putin as well as against his own opposition. Or maybe just has a new business partner, uh, and uh, they they focus on gold and diamond mines in Africa. Yeah, so it could be a stepping stone to get some of his assets and strengths out, uh, because surely the you know Lukashenko gets some benefits there. Maybe gets his own, uh, you know, as you say, super um, sort of prominent bodyguard. But at the same time, that must present a risk having essentially you know twenty five thousand hardened criminals and marauders on your territory 
that that's a bit of a wild card. Yeah, and uh, his his Lukashenko's internal security services are pretty strong. His army is terrible. There, there's a reason that they have not joined. I mean, they're they're even less well trained than were the Russian forces. And I think Lukashenko knew they would be destroyed, or that they might not even obey orders to go into Ukraine, uh, or that the opposition might take advantage of the army being gone. And I think he only had like five uh, battalion tactical groups. So I, I don't know what this Star Wars bar scene of security forces uh, will actually be inside uh, Belarus. But, um, you know, we're talking about a gigantic mafia uh, construct here with, between Russia, Belarus, all of these guys. This is pure gangster, lots of weapons, lots of power. I don't know how any of them sleep well at night um, unless they are totally surrounded by a phalanx of people that they can completely uh, trust and that's that number has got to be smaller and smaller and uh, as we're coming sort of towards the end it's probably fitting and proper to focus on ukraine because as more territory is liberated uh more horror stories are coming to light i don't know if you've managed to see uh the film that john swinney produced the eastern front there is some horrific footage there of people who survived uh torture in the torture cells in kherson uh region that have emerged um that means that the focus really uh, of a lot of the conferences is now turning towards reconstruction. Um, and an aspect of that must be uh, what does actually victory constitute for Ukraine? And it must also include compensation for what's happened. Um, some kind of uh, not just restitution, but also admittance of those crimes by Russia, which is perhaps a far off dream. And also the return of the thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of kidnapped children as well. So what is your vision of you know, a maximalist victory, and how on earth are all of those points going to be achieved? So total restoration of the 1991 borders, obviously that includes Crimea and Donbass, not only because that is in accordance with the law and the UN Charter, but it also um, is a message to everyone else that you cannot, it's unacceptable uh, to all of us that you can use force to to change borders. That, so that and the Chinese will be watching this very closely as well. So that's that's number one. Uh, Ukraine will never be safe or secure so long as Russia occupies Crimea. They'll never be able to rebuild their economy so long as Russia occupies Crimea. Um, the second thing, you, you, you've actually hit on the other two or three things. So bringing back all of these kidnapped children, the thousands of uh, Ukrainians who were distributed across Russia, that, that will be a forever task. But nonetheless, uh, I think it's one that has to be done. Uh, the ICC has already, International Criminal Court has already indicted Putin and his uh, um, Minister of Children's Rights. What an interesting job title uh, for her and what she's done. Um, I think there will be more and more willingness for people to uh, uh, enforce or support that indictment than maybe there were now that they've seen how truly weak he is. And it's now, I, it's more believable now than it was a month ago that at some point Russia hands over Vladimir Putin to the court the way Serbia handed over uh, Milosevic. Uh, not anytime soon, but it's it's more believable right now. Um, and then, of course, uh, I do sense a growing uh, willingness or desire to have Ukraine in NATO. Uh, and I think the Vilnius summit coming up here in two weeks will be a failure if there is not a very strong, clear statement with concrete steps that Ukraine belongs in NATO and will be invited to NATO. Uh, 
uh, I think usually when people say, no, we can't do it because they're at war and that would mean automatic Article 5 and we're not going to do that. No, that's a completely uh, wrong-headed understanding of what this all means. Um, an invitation to Ukraine does not equal membership. It, normal process, it can be. It, it took two years, I think, for Finland from the time that they asked and were invited until now, almost two years. And so um, I think the failure to do this is a victory for the Kremlin because they, they will have shown that we're not willing to do it because we're worried that they might escalate somehow. And instead, uh, the best chance for Russia to actually be safe from Ukraine is for Ukraine to be in NATO. Otherwise, Ukrainians will feel the need to constantly arm themselves to the teeth and um, maybe even look for their own nuclear weapons uh, to undo what they think they made, a mistake that they made years ago. And that's the real irony, isn't it? The weaker Vladimir Putin is, the more likely that NATO accession will have less resistance. The stronger he is, um, you know, the need is greater for NATO, but actually the reluctance uh, on the part of various countries will be greater. Yeah. Well, look, this war is what failed deterrence looks like. Uh, we we did not do what we needed to do. Uh, the alliance did not look unified. Ukrainians had not done all that they should have done even after 2014. And so you can see how the Kremlin pr felt pretty confident they could they could get away with it again. And uh, and so fortunately, everybody came together. And, and I'm very confident that this unity is going to continue on well into next year. Um, but it should have never even gotten to this point. And that's a great place to end. Uh, it's a huge privilege uh, speaking again, Ben. I think that's brought a lot of sort of clarity to the issues we discussed there in amongst the sort of media frenzy that we're seeing over recent days. Um, good luck with the work you're doing. And I uh, hope you get some rest in between these uh, uh, media media uh, jousts. Well, Jonathan, thank you. Uh, I, I love your style, the, the platform, the way you do this. And then you gave me a chance to kind of think out loud a little bit about, uh, you know, how do we address these issues? So thanks very much.